Well, it's good to be with you up in here at the North Site, and um, we've been uh, having a good time down the other one too. I mean, it, it is a strange thing to leave one environment and come to another because you, you know, you do have to try and adjust part of anything else, part to the technicalities. It's just uh, a different size and dynamic, but it's lovely to come into worship. And uh, that was really helpful. It's worth managing to do that, I find. And then you can settle, because what you're here for is to share the word of God. We're going to do that. We're going to enjoy this beautiful Easter morning. And it is a beautiful day. Uh, and it's so, so nice to be able to enjoy it here. We're going to do it by looking at one of the incidents of the resurrection. And we're going to dig into that and learn a few things from it. We're, we're in our Everyone's Invited series. And uh, we're going to look at Luke 24. So if you've got a Bible or it's on your uh, iPhone or whatever way you look, uh, let's turn to it now. It's worth seeing it. Just to let you know that the context, if you, I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible, I trust many of you would know, but that's not a problem if you don't. The context is that two of Jesus' disciples have met him on what's called the two on the road to Emmaus. On the road to Emmaus, and they were very depressed and downbeat and fed up. And um, they met with Jesus, and in in actual fact, they didn't really recognize him. And if you looked at verse 30, you'd see the first time that it dawns on them, or their eyes are opened, it says, it says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. It was again around a table, just want you to notice that. It was around a meal table that Jesus suddenly sort of was visible to them. Oh, wow, it's Jesus. Their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and then he disappeared from their sight. Now, then they talked together and said how excited we were, our hearts burned within us when we were talking to him. And these guys had walked miles a bit down in the dumps, to be honest, and depressed. And yet they found energy and enthusiasm to hurry back and tell the rest of the disciples, which is where we will pick it up in verse 36. While they were still talking, the they then is these two, and telling excitedly all that had happened. Wow, we, we've seen Jesus. He explained stuff to us on the, on the road and everything. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, slightly different now, it's not depression, it's just like we cannot believe. They're so delighted. He asked them, do you have anything here to eat? Now they were actually, again, probably at a meal. And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish. They gave him a bit of fish from their meal on the table there. He took it and ate it in their presence and said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. It's a great incident, it's one of several, telling us about the risen Jesus. But I want to take a moment or two, a little more than an introduction. So this is more than just an intro. 
I, I want to take sort of the first 40% of my talk, if you like, just to highlight how important the resurrection is. Very simple and clear, because I think we need to get that and understand it. The resurrection of Jesus is as important as the cross. Now, the Bible it makes a lot of effort to make it clear to you that this was a real resurrection. It was a physical resurrection of someone who had died. And, and in actual fact, the death of Jesus is made very thoroughly clear, the death and burial. So, for example, experienced Roman soldiers checked that he was dead. One of them killed him, finished him off with a spear. And you need to know Roman soldiers, with no exaggeration, were killing machines. I mean, the Roman army was ruthless. And that's how it captured so much of the known world, really, including parts of our own country. And they could really actually devastate a population. These guys were, were very familiar with death. And they were familiar not only with how to kill people, what a dead body looked like. So there would be no real doubt that they made a mistake and Jesus was just badly injured and stuff like that, which you sometimes hear. You sometimes hear these crazy things said because what we're going to come to in a minute, the empty grave is quite a puzzle. And so sometimes people have said, oh, well, did he really die or did he faint? No, no, he died. Roman soldiers finished him off. He was truly buried. Two wealthy men, Nicodemus and uh, 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 Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus, yeah, who were wealthy, mature men who, again, would know what a dead body looked like and would not be easily fooled, lovingly took down the battered body, wrapped it in a grave cloths and probably about 75 pounds of spices, which is an awful lot of weight and a lot of money because there was a wealthy man. But that was to sort of embalm the body. But that is a thorough burial, totally wrapped up and all that heavy spices and things wrapped in. Then the body was laid in Joseph's new tomb, which a wealthy man, remember, would have purchased for his own death. So he really did know where it was. Uh, you know, it was like a small, modest sort of, I don't know, I don't want to use, I was going to like buying a little home. <laughs> you know, these were special things. It, was, it would have been carved into solid rock with just an entrance at the front. So it was a very special, if you like, thing, the privilege that an older, wealthier person might have had that facility. So this is no corporation graveyard. Do you know what I mean? Huge, big one. Well, I wonder where they buried him. You know, I've gone and visited aunt, great aunt Ninny. Was she down there? No, it's not that at all. Not that at all. This is thoroughly known. On top of that, the Pharisees, who seem to be much more aware of the fact that Jesus talked about his resurrection, more aware than the disciples, who seem to not be expecting it at all, the Pharisees said, we want to make sure this, you know, there's no fraud here. So there was a big stone put in front of it, a big heavy stone. It was sealed, and that seal probably meant ropes crossed across it with two big seals of maybe clay or wax with possibly a pilot's insignia on it. So really thorough. That's sealed up. And an armed guard, of, again, of these uh, able soldiers are guarding the entrance. That's a proper death, and it's a very, very thorough burial. There is no doubt that Jesus was dead and buried. And no mistakes were made. Nobody would have turned up at the wrong grave. Nobody would have easily been able to take the body out of that grave. Certainly not a bunch of frightened, confused disciples. So let's think, remind ourselves, the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus was an actual event in history. 
there really was a day, and we remember it today, we call it Easter Day, Easter Sunday, when Jesus rose from the dead. And I really like Easter because we sort of get it right with Easter. Christmas, you never know quite what we're celebrating, sorry. But it's a funny old event. But this one, we know because we know where the Passovers are. and where, So we know this is the real time of year and the real day that we're remembering something that happened an awfully long time ago, nearly 2,000 years ago. And, and actually, on that day, a real day, in real history, a person really rose from the dead. Now, that's, that's factual, an event. Now, Christianity is rooted in historical events, which is part of its strength and its vulnerability because that's where people always attack it. That's why people get so, you know, into tearing into the Bible and trying to question, did Jesus do this? Did he exist? And all the, the evidence for him existing is absolute. I mean, you'd be an idiot to think he didn't exist. Now, even with this, there's pretty weighty evidence of the resurrection because nobody ever did find a body anywhere. And we're going to talk a little more quickly about some of it. But let's start with this. It was a real event and Jesus really, really rose from the dead. And that's very important because it shows that God... Our creator is interested in our whole bodies. He's interested in our physical bodies as well as our spiritual well-being. God is into holistic salvation. Honestly, he is. That's one of the lessons from the resurrection. Another one is that God is an interventionist God. God intervenes in history. He, he does do unusual things. Now, to him, they're not unusual. What we call the laws of nature aren't really laws to him. Now, I'm not sure they're even laws to us these days. We realise they're things we observe more generally true. But God does all sorts of interesting and fascinating things. And uh, we're sometimes beginning to understand it with our bits and pieces about black holes and time and all the rest of it. But that, that's for another day. But, but that's us just looking at the edge of it. But for God, there's no problem. He intervenes and changes things. He does. And he will do it for us. God is interested in miracles. He's interested in change. The resurrection says God will bring change to your life. He will give you a new body one day. He will change everything, of, as Steve's already briefly referred to, in heaven and earth. God is a God of renewal and significant, miraculous, mind-blowing change. That's part of it, of what we learn. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is unique in world religions. I mean, it really is. There are plenty of mythical stories in world religions, and some of them are fantastic. Some of them are moving, you know, the more realistic ones of people who make great sacrifices in different ways. And some of them are a bit weird. And there's all sorts of mythical stories, but there's nothing like the resurrection. Honestly, the resurrection, the story of the resurrection emerges in our Gospels as you read them carefully. It emerges in the four Gospels and the beginning of Acts and then later with some of the references back, particularly ones that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians. And you gradually can piece the story together. What's interesting is that it's actually quite hard to get the chronology right and the detail right. You think, well, is that another person's version of the same? You know, and, and at first you could think, well, oh, is that a problem? Inconsistency. Opposite to a problem. It's not a problem. It's authentic. I mean, the thing that is remarkable is that it is like that. If it was fictional, mythical, made up, it would all be very tidy. And there are many, many things in the story of the resurrection that in the first century, nobody would put in there. Let's give you just one. The very first people to meet the risen Jesus were women. Nobody would have done that if they'd made it up. 
that's a sign from God about something, but that would not have been, because even at this time, a woman's, sorry ladies, a woman's testimony was not taken in court. So <laughs> patriarchal was the society. And was, you know, so to have the first witnesses would just wouldn't compute. If you were making it up, it wouldn't be like this. In fact, the very way it comes over is exactly as you would expect when you know how we have these stories. They were eyewitness accounts that were gathered, some of them told by the people themselves. For example, Paul was able to say, there are 500 people who saw Jesus at one time. Some of them are still alive. So you could actually talk to them if you lived near them. But a lot of this is gathered together. Luke, which we've just read, Luke's Gospel, at the very beginning of Luke's Gospel, read it for yourself if you're interested, the first few verses. He says, I brought together various accounts and eyewitness and records. He's quite upfront. I mean, it's how the Bible's gathered. It's how the New Testament gets its stuff, particularly the Gospels. He said, I've brought them together. I don't want to lose it. I've made one coherent sort of record from all these bits and pieces. Now, if you had eyewitness accounts from different types and groups of people, none of whom are particularly highly educated or uh, you know, great writers or anything, because none of these people are writers, Peter and John and the women at the... You would probably have something exactly like this. Now, if you made it up, this is very, very cleverly made up, because it's nothing like myths are written 2,000 years ago. In fact, in fact, this is true... If this is made up, it's extraordinary. It's what we call anachronistic. That is, it's out of time. Because nobody writes fiction like this in the first century. Absolutely nobody. Nobody thinks like that. You write it in a stylistic, mythical sort of way. And anybody who understands Greek and Roman literature, not me, knows the sort of thing that you might get. But it wouldn't be like this. In fact, if this was fictional, if the accounts of the resurrection are fictional... It's extraordinarily out of time. It's the sort of thing that you'd only get with a modern novel. It's the only way people thought and wrote for about the last couple of hundred years. Far more convincing is that it's exactly what it says it is. That it's an account of bits and pieces of eyewitnesses. People who were there, people said, well, this happened. We were having breakfast on the beach. We were there. And then Thomas turned up a week later and he appeared again. You know, all the stuff, it's that is, and people remembered the bit they were there and it was all gathered together. It's unique and you don't get it in any other religion. And I would even go as strongly to say, without rubbishing anything, there is a definite difference between Jesus Christ and any other founder of world religion. I mean, if you don't get that, perhaps you haven't thought about it very much, not being rude, have a good think and a look at Jesus. It's not the same. We're told in our culture quite often all religions are the same. They are not. Jesus is very different in what he teaches, how he behaves, what he does, how he dies, and the fact that a huge part of the Gospels are interested in his death, which is a strange thing in itself, you could argue. But then this amazing thing, the resurrection, it's quite different. And if you don't know Jesus yourself, can I encourage you to take time, even over this Easter weekend, to reread some of the gospel bits. It will open your eyes to an incredible man who will change your life. And you perhaps will meet him even this morning as we finish this morning. I want to give you opportunity to even think about your own life today and pray about it. So we'll do that as we get to the end. The resurrection is essential to Christianity. It's absolutely essential. Now, you see, if... We don't have a resurrection. If we just have the teaching of Jesus and his death, 
We've got some nice and powerful things, but we've got nothing that is truly good news. It's not good news. Why isn't it good news? Well, actually, it's, it really isn't. It's almost bad news. I'll tell you why. You have this wonderful man who did nobody any harm, who brought good and healing and, and wholeness to people and was gentle and meek in many ways, though he was strong in others, but he certainly wasn't aggressive. He's picked up by the system, the religious and the military and the political system, churned through, horribly abused and killed. System wins. What's the good news in that? Oh, he's a wonderful example. Yeah, and so are many others in history. And it's very heartbreaking that that the big system always wins. You know, that in the end, the power brokers got there. That's not good news. It might be moving, it might be lovely ideas and moving story, but the good news is the resurrection, because that's the victory. Death couldn't hold him. Actually, he chose the cross. He absorbed all the hatred and anger and the judgment of God against sin and rose victorious. That's the good news. Without that, it isn't really good news. It isn't. In fact, it's almost reinforcing what we fear, the bad news, that in the end the bad people and the system gets people. That is not how it is. Out from the resurrection comes all the possibility of the promises that God makes being fulfilled. All the promises of new life, forgiveness, cleansing, new start, eternal life, uh, hope for the future. It all comes out of the resurrection, breaking the power of sin and Satan, changing things forever reversing some of the fear and bondage of death and fear of death. It all comes out of the resurrection. It's wonderful, wonderful. A new order is created, new hope that we can be new creations. It doesn't have to be same old, same old. The resurrection breaks that chain. So the physical resurrection of Jesus is absolutely central to the Christian faith. You've got no resurrection, you've got no gospel, you've got no hope. Essentially, you've got no worthwhile Christianity. You've just got another philosophical thing with lots of moral ideas. And there's plenty of other good ones actually out there without being condescending. I mean, there's some very uplifting ideas and thoughts in all sorts of settings, whether it be Confucius or Mahatma Gandhi or some of the Indian religions. There's all Buddhism. There's all sorts of stuff where that tells you very interesting how you ought to live and what it might do. And it's not by any means all weird. Some of it's very weird, but not all of it. But this is totally different, utterly different. Jesus died and rose again that you might have a fresh start, that you might know God for yourself, that one day you might have that new body, and a body like his body. Real John grows, but with Jesus' resurrection-type body to live forever with him. It's amazing stuff, and it starts now. And God's interested in my body now and he's interested in my life now because the resurrection, as I say, tells me it's bigger than just a spiritual thing. So in the, the second half of what I want to say, I want to sort of take what are essentially three aspects because I could honestly talk about many aspects of the resurrection, many aspects. And I just want to focus on them as a slight evidence for the resurrection, but more importantly, as a lesson for us. So let's look at these three. Corporate experience. Now, I think this is remarkable and it's important. A lot of the resurrection appearances are to groups of people. In fact, they, you will find two, 
three or four. I'm not quite sure, actually, if the women at the one of the scenes there is, is three or four. You'll find seven, you'll find 11. And at one time, Paul says 500 who met the risen Jesus. In fact, the majority of sightings are groups. And, in, and, and, and it, there's only a couple that are single. I, I'm not even sure it's more than just Mary Magdalene. So that's interesting. Now, that's got a couple of important points. One is evidence for the resurrection. Sometimes people say, well, you know, it, perhaps it was hallucination. Maybe they were just fevered and disturbed and they were looking. Well, first of all, they weren't looking for a resurrection. Remember that. The Pharisees were a bit sharper about it, but the, all, that is, all of the disciples, I think every single instant, they were needed persuading. They were not expecting it. Just think of the women at the well, at the well sorry, the women at the grave, Onwards. I mean, they turned up with all their spices and stuff, expecting to just hoping they'd be have a chance to show their respects. And it goes on and on and on, right through the two to, to on the road to my, everything we read this morning. People did not come. Oh, is he alive? Oh, did I see him? Oh, was that him? That's not there at all. But also, real hallucinations or ghost sightings, whatever they are, are very rarely corporate events. They're, very, they're usually one and you might be a couple of people. They're not 11 and 500 and, you know, they're not. They're not, not in double figures, which they frequently, several times, the disciples are in a significant group, all of them together. It's more than once. And as many occasions when they meet with Jesus, now get this, they eat with him, they talk to him, he talks and teaches them. So the 40 days from his resurrection to ascension, it seems that the seeds of a lot of what's in our New Testament were, were things Jesus taught, how he fulfilled the Old Testament, how he was God's aunt, brought the kingdom of God to them. You know, all stuff that we as Christians build on, probably he was teaching them that. This is not a hallucination thing. This is not a ghost sighting, fevered brains, you know, a little bit dark. You know, it, was that Jesus in the corner? Oh, I looked again and no. It's not like that. It's nothing like that. Uh, that's important. But there's something that's even more important for you and I this morning in a way. What is Jesus saying to us by the fact that by and large, he deliberately chose to meet groups, communities of his servant, of his disciples? I mean, he went to quite extraordinary lengths to prove that point one I'll just give you off the top of my head there's a story which you may know about Thomas who's called Doubting Thomas who wasn't with the disciples on one week when Jesus met with them and so when he met his 10 colleagues because Judas was gone he did not believe them which is in itself mildly amusing I mean it's not really he was quite rude he said well unless I say I won't believe so he basically said I think you lot are lying I mean that's what he was saying But it was a week later when they were gathered together and Thomas was there when Jesus met with Thomas. Now, we know the story, so we can not not let it go over our heads. But you think, why didn't Jesus meet Thomas on his own sometime during the week? Say, Thomas, let's have a word with you, mate. Here I am. Look at my... No, no. He did... Because, I think there's a big lesson here. Jesus loves to meet with us in our corporate settings. Honestly. Church is vital. I am not just stretching the point. It is vital. Jesus said, where two or three gather together in my name, there am I in the midst. You see, we are in a hyper-individualistic culture. 
Jesus does speak to individuals. Of course he does. He has, you have to have a personal faith in Jesus. But he loves to meet with us in groups. Not just the big gatherings, but the sevens and the elevens, as well as the five hundreds. But those are the ways in which Jesus builds his church. And you cannot cut that out of your Christian experience without suffering a huge loss. Like Thomas, by not being there the first week, he missed out on meeting Jesus and had to wake a whole long week feeling weird and grumpy until he met Jesus again, which is exactly what happens when you miss out on church. (laughs) Wait a whole week feeling weird and grumpy until you get back. Now, I'm not just banging the drum for attendance. I'm, I'm seriously saying there is something inherently precious about corporate gatherings of Jesus' disciples. And that's set down right from the start. The corporate experience is a crucial part of the Christian faith. Church is a crucial part of the Christian faith. Let's go on. Communal meals. This is quite striking as well. The risen Jesus is recorded as quite often eating with his disciples. I mean, it's, you know, we take it granted. It's a bit unusual if you think about it. So the, 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 we've read the two from Road to Emmaus. We've read the, the next incident. But there are others. There's John 21 where Jesus meets the disciples, seven of them actually, who've gone fishing. And, and he cooks breakfast for them on the beach and then says bring some of your fish and I mean it obviously goes on for hours I mean I don't know how quick long it takes you to barbecue fish but I presume it's more than a few seconds so I mean it's I mean otherwise I wouldn't eat it if I were you but uh, I mean you know he's barbecuing fish and he's cooking and eating and walking along talking to people this is not I mean it's a meal and it's quite important even that I've described it that way you'll see what I mean in a moment but that it's referred to quite a bit you get, you get Mark 16, 14. It was, it's one of the features of the resurrection, briefly summarised in Mark, that he ate with them. But if you read Acts 10, none of these are on the screen. They don't need to be. But if you read Acts 10, verse 41, Peter is later sort of saying about the resurrection, we met him, you know, which is a hugely significant thing, which he refers to quite often. You find it at the beginning of Peter's letters too. And John does it a bit too. And they would do. They said, we met him and saw him and touched him. They say things like that. But one of the things Peter says is, we ate with him. He was, I mean, he's like, we ate with him. You know, I mean, that's quite something, isn't it? It's like, we, we had meals with him. It was incredible. And Peter could say, and he took me for a walk along the beach and sorted me out, which is what he did. So, so there is something going on. What is going on? Well, again, we have to watch the culture thing. Although we, I don't think we're as bad about this. I said it about the individualism. Um, here, we are a little bit fast and foodie, aren't we? Fast and get it over with meals. I think some of us are worse than others. I'm a bit of a British male. I sort of gobble my food down to get on with the next thing, which is not great. Not great for your digestion or for your fellowship. And I, you, do you... I, 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 I think we're, we're unusual. Uh, we don't quite totally do this. We do still get that meals... What a point I want to make, meals are times of communion. They're times of fellowship. They're times of eating together, relaxing together, sharing food, sharing ideas, sharing hearts. That was very true in the first century. It's actually true in most cultures, and it's probably historically even been more true than it is today in our culture. So, you know, we've got televisions and screens, and you have to tell them not to look at the screens while they're at the table, and all that horrible nonsense. Well, once upon a time, it was a family 
event, wasn't it, a meal? More th- we fight to keep it like that and try to have it like that. I'm sure we all do. But let's step back from our culture and realise that this is more than Jesus just proving he was alive. There's a bit of that. He took the fish, showed he was real when he's there physically. But it's a little more than that. This is communion. This is fellowship. This is Jesus sharing life. He's sharing his heart. Now, I remember these three things I'm talking about. They're not only proofs, they're markers. So the first one was a marker that Jesus meets with his disciples in corporate groups. He loves the church. This one is that he loves to have fellowship with his um, people. Jesus is not a fast food. He, He is someone who wants to commune with you in your life. It's not modern world. You know, I'm smiling again. I'm not great at this, but, you know, I do buy things online. Oh, yes, I do. And, um, you know, Amazon, if you do it clever now, you only have to do one click because it's got all your stuff in there, isn't it? It used to be three clicks. Now you can do it one click. Oh, I've got it already. Oh, I don't want it. But anyway, so you... (laughs) This, Jesus, is not like that. One click, you've got Jesus. One click's done, hands up, pray. I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, I'm all right now. What, what will I have now? I'll click on one of those as well. No, no, actually, that is not Christianity. You invite Jesus into your life and he wants to share life with you. Let me give you a verse from later, but it's about the risen Jesus. He's speaking to his church, actually. Revelation 3.20, just look at this. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, this is Jesus speaking, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, obviously, there's an element of picture because this is the risen Jesus speaking to people. This is him speaking to people like you and me in our time. This is not, just be very clear, this is not from the gospel bit where we say, well, you know, it was great for them. They met with Jesus. No, no, forget that. This is past this. This is for you, right? And me. Jesus comes to you and me and says, here I am. If anyone, anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, they with me. Now, I I believe this is a genuine, powerful picture that Jesus wants to come into your life and share life with you. This meals stood for that community. You know, don't ex- I don't want to mock, but I, you know, you don't expect this is a sort of literal thing, like Jesus is going to have Sunday lunch with you and sit there in a chair. That was happening at the resurrection. We've gone beyond that. He's ascended. Now it's the Holy Spirit that comes and with you. But the principle, the principle is exactly the same. Jesus does not want to be a quick fix in your life. Amen? He wants you to welcome him into your whole life. And so he can fellowship with you and share his life with you and you, you share your life with him. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? But you've got to open the door. You've got to do it. He's not going to force, he's not going to kick the door down. He doesn't do that. That's not, and you will find it in the resurrection appearances. He doesn't force himself. But look at the two on the road to Emmaus. He waits till they invite him in. If you know the story, you know that's why we didn't have time to read it all. He waits, they invite him, and then they, whoa, it's Jesus. When they're just a bit locked up with their misery, they're talking to this bloke walking beside them. Don't you even know what happened? And, and, and Jesus doesn't force himself. Say, oi, get your heads up, it's me. He doesn't do that. And, uh, 
he lets them keep their heads down at that point, it seems. And then they say, oh, do you want to come in then? And he comes in and suddenly, woo, it's Jesus we've invited in. Now that woo can be for you. Maybe it already is for the majority of you. Well, enjoy it then. <laughs> Jesus is with you in your life. He wants to share your life. He's, he's sitting at the meal table with you. He's, he's, he's fellowshipping. This is a huge thing. It is, don't think modern meals, think other culture meals. This is sharing life, sharing heart. Jesus, amen, is sharing with you. We give a little opportunity to focus that at the end if you want to. But it's very important. Let's move on, lastly, to church expansion. Again, I'm just thinking of things that are sort of evidence for the resurrection, but they've got a lesson for us as well. When you think about it, the growth of the church of Jesus Christ is extraordinary. Not only its growth, but its survival. We've just heard from Steve mentioned a horrible thing that happened only within the last 24 hours, I gather, where, uh, was it 140 people killed, maybe it was Friday, killed while they were at church. Persecution, basically. Well, that's not unusual. Thank God it is in our country, but it's not unusual historically or worldwide. And for 2,000 years, Real Christians have often been marginalised at best and sometimes killed. And, and yet the church has grown and flourished. And actually, if you look at the beginnings, it is a bit odd. We again take it for granted because we know the story. And we've also, in our case particularly, got 2,000 years of history. So we've got lovely big cathedrals with carved statues of Peter and John and the saints. And, you know, I'm not I'm anti those, but in a, well, I don't like them that much. But to be honest, never mind. They give us a false impression of who these people were. You almost need to put them aside in your mind. Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't that clever. I mean, even after the resurrection, they made the resurrection, they don't have any idea what to do. Do you know that incident which the 21, the going fish, Peter suggested they went fishing. It's a bit like, they well, it's great he's alive, but I'm not sure what we do. What about going fishing? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's go fishing. You know, it seems like that's it then, is it? You just go fish. You know, it, 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 they're not in the top drawer, really. They're certainly not movers and shakers. The the the, the the, I mean, you cannot overemphasize this. The country that they live in, Israel, is a small, physically small country. It's probably not much bigger than Wales. Apologies. It's, it's a physically small country. It is not on the Roman Empire's radar list of most dangerous places. The Romans couldn't care less. They'd have them for breakfast. You know, they fight the Persians or somebody else, but they're, you know, they're just there, by and large. So the great power empire of the day is not in the slightest thoughtful about Israel and Palestine. But even within there, these guys don't come from the top drawer in Jerusalem. They come from Nazareth and Bethlehem. I mean, they, you know, what comes out of Nazareth? I don't want to use a modern equivalent because I'll offend someone. But, you know, they don't come from the, you know... Mayfair or something, you know, they come from Westminster, they come from a very backwoodsy place. They are not top draw people at all. They're not movers and shakers, they're not smooth operators, they're nothing. You think, how did it ever grow? Then think what they were dealing with at this time. In the first century, the strongholds of that culture, huge amount of area right around the Mediterranean, were 
intellectually Greek philosophy and Greek uh, religion, I suppose, and socially or, or in political terms, the Roman Empire, probably still recognised as both two of the great powers of world history. You know, the Greek influence, the Greek thought still resonates, the Roman influence still resonates. These were mighty empires of mind and physical presence. I mean, the idea, this handful of fishermen and goodness knows what, ex-tax collectors, could shake those strongholds is just crazy unless there's a supernatural origin. There has to be. And it is a little more than just the, the physical appearance of Jesus. It is the consequences of that, the Holy Spirit coming, the day of Pentecost. But it's all part of the same package. Jesus died, rose again victorious, went back to the Father, was able to send the Holy Spirit to completely, radically change these people. They were psychologically bucked up and very happy after meeting Jesus, but they even needed more. And the very existence and growth of the church is extraordinary, brothers and sisters. And people say, oh yeah, but you know, what about medieval armies and crusades? I'm not talking, that's political mixture. Real Christianity through the last 2,000 years is not about wars and things. Jesus wasn't like that. Look at the Bible. Read Jesus. Read Paul. They're not encouraging people to go around chopping their enemies up. That's a horrible mixture of politics and misunderstanding of the Bible. Lay it aside. And all sorts of flags are used by men in in evil times and wars. Let's look at real Christianity, which has been there for 2,000 plus years. It is essentially not a powerful power brace. It's an incredible miracle that it's as huge as it is. It really is miraculous. And the start of it is incredible. That, I think, is very telling. But as we end, what lesson do we get on that? Because I'm trying to apply it to us. Well, I think at the beginning, Jesus set, I hope you've realised what I'm saying to some degree, set something of the sort of um, tone for the church age. So there was the the corporate experiences. There was the, uh, he sort of set markers out, I guess, there was the, the, the communal meals, the fellowship that is more than just, you know, it's, it's communing with life, over life. But here he actually says these things. I'm going to be ever so quick. Don't worry. They're just quick points. He says these things to his disciples at this resurrection time. He talks about scripture. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And you'll find that reinforced in other ways with, with other accounts. I believe the Bible is absolutely vital for church growth and expansion. I believe it is an absolute mistake, a folly, to think that the Bible is an embarrassment. And we've got to explain it away, which sometimes, sadly, some liberal-minded theologians do, or that we don't need it, we don't need to read it, we don't need to worry about it, just sort of get a general picture and sort of go with the flow. You know, all that sort of nonsense. Let's lay it all aside. We need our minds opened to understand the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit does it. It's not only about intellectual ability or study. It's not, 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 not really primarily about that. But Jesus clearly laid down that the Word of God was crucial to his church. Okay? One major point. And the church fails when it, when it ignores that and doesn't do it. Next one, quickly. Gospel. Look at these verses here too. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. 
Now, this is the main message of the church. And we need to keep the main thing the main thing. I think it's great that lots of other things happen. There are secondary things, subsidiary things, supportive things. Much of it is to do with organising. Some of it is to do with good works and charitable works and uh, helping the poor. I don't despise any of it. But this is the central message. And if it's not the central message, the church won't grow. Because it grows because people meet Jesus. That's the only way it grows. People need their sins forgiven. They need to know that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Unashamedly. True death, true resurrection. That's why I love preaching what I preached this morning. Because it's absolutely central. And it must stay central. And that that means that you can have your sins forgiven and you can meet with God and know him and commune with him. So scripture, gospel, and finally, Holy Spirit. Jesus even says here, I am going to send you what my Father has promised. That's the Holy Spirit. You can check that out with other uh, verses in the Bible. You'll see that's what he's talking about. Stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot build church without serious respect for Scripture, preaching about Jesus, his death, resurrection, and the impact on an individual's life, repentance, forgiveness of sins, and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the formula for the growth and expansion of the church, and this is the bedrock of everything we do. If we lose that, we will not grow. Now, we're not in that position, but plenty of churches around would testify. We have seen, I've seen, where people lose the plot on many of these three things and ultimately fade. The church is built on these three. Not just the word, also the Holy Spirit and central gospel is central. Amen? And this is the hope of the world. This is how it works and it was so at the beginning. Now if you here this morning and you haven't ever really known Jesus, this is as I close... I want to say to you, I'm going to do something quite simple, but it can be quite serious. I hope it will be for you. Um, In Revelation 3.20, what we read, Jesus said, "I'm, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone opens the door, that's your choice to open the door. He does, as I said, although it was a lighthearted comment, it's quite serious. He doesn't push the door open, he doesn't kick it down. He gives you opportunity but you have to take the opportunity. Maybe this morning is that very opportunity. It is the knock on your door that you're even here. Now you need to say, Lord, come in. I welcome you. I want fellowship with you. Come and eat with me. And that's what he would do. Now you might say, how do I do that? Well, how you do it is by just saying it to him in a prayer. So we're going to finish with praying. So I'd like you to pray with me. If you want to pray this prayer... I'll tell you in advance, I'm not going to ask you to come out to the front or something. I'm going to, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If you pray this prayer seriously, we've got some booklets at the Connect Point called Why Easter. If you've never known Jesus as your saviour, or you feel unsure of what you've done before, and you want to pray this with me, the one thing I would ask you to do is ask for one of these booklets, or take one, take it home, read it through, and you'll find a similar prayer, not quite the same, but similar at the back of it, maybe you want to even pray it again, just to seal in your mind what you've done. But if you mean it, even as you pray this morning, 
Jesus will come in to your life. And he'll change it, but he'll change it for the better. But it might be a bit disruptive as well, but in a good way. But he won't be just a passing friend. He'll come in and sit and eat with you and commune with you. So let's, let's pray. You can use this prayer yourself. Lord Jesus Christ, I am sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. Please forgive me, Lord Jesus. I turn from everything that I know is wrong and I want to follow you, Jesus. Thank you that you died on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven and set free. Thank you, Jesus, that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of new life. I gladly receive that gift now. Jesus, come into my life and make me new. Lord Jesus, I welcome your presence in my life. By your Holy Spirit, begin to teach me and change me. Thank you. Amen.